Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to the Realignment. We are here with another Realignment Q episode. We said we were going to start doing these more because we were getting so many questions that we are unable to actually answer them one a show. So we've batched a bunch together. We had a lot of fun with this, got a lot of really great feedback. So be sure to keep sending stuff in. So a couple housekeeping items that we'll go into before we start the episode. We are a go on mugs. We're going to launch our website and the Shopify store where we'll sell mugs and other swag down the line on October 1st. So a huge thanks to everyone who encouraged us to do so. As we mentioned, if you've already sent in a specific ask for mugs, we will get you a free mug. There's going to be about 10 of you guys, so thank you so much. We've closed that window on free mugs, but congrats to Chuck from Erie, Pennsylvania. You are going to be the final recipient of our free mugs. That's right. And as of the recording of this episode, we are at 645 ratings on Apple Podcasts, getting much closer to hitting our goal of 1,000 ratings and reviews by the election. So please, please, please do us a favor. Scroll to the bottom of that podcast page on Apple and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks to everybody who's rated us so far and is bearing through these ratings pitches. It really helps people find the show, and we are going to wrap up our pitch after we break 1,000 so you all have an incentive to keep this up. And last thing before we get to those cues, quick shout out to our host and our sponsor, The Lincoln Network. We are getting closer and closer to their Reboot 2020 conference, November 6th, 9th, and 10th. Very excited to help host that. Check out rebootconference.org to learn more. So what do we got, Marshall? So now on to the questions. A reminder, if you would like to submit a realignment cue, either email us at realignmentpod at gmo.com with a screenshot of a five-star review or leave us a cue in a five-star review of the show on your Apple Podcast app. A bunch of people in today's show did that. So first question from Samantha. Hey guys, new listener here. Can you actually describe your political viewpoints, your sort of way you think about the world? Ooh, that's a very, very tough question, Marshall. And uh, it's something that I think I fall in line with the majority of Americans who hold heterodox views which don't necessarily comport with either established side in America. The way I would generally describe it is I am against concentrated power in its current form. I'm not against the idea of concentrated power. I'm against the concentrated power in our current form of American society. So what does that fall into? Wall Street, Hollywood, capital class, the military, right? So the think tank industrial complex here in Washington, D.C., But it's not just about entities. It's also about groupthink. It's about the ideological capture of a lot of the most important institutions in the United States. And I think that we are badly and desperately in need of a counter to that ideology, a counter and a reformation of the most established, powerful institutions in the U.S. So if I were to sum it up kind of in a single way, that's the way I would put it. What do you think, Marshall? What I like about your answer there is that you're describing objectives that you hold, right? So you're defining power and the different structures, how power operate and sort of gaps that need to sort of be filled. I sort of think about it the same way. I don't, and I never felt comfortable 
describing myself as a Democrat when I was younger, a Republican sort of today. In many views, in many ways, a lot of our views are heterodox too. So I like to focus more on objectives, right? So what is the thing you want to accomplish through the political system? What do we want to accomplish through this small but very influential podcast? So what I actually want to accomplish is this idea of promoting this viewpoint of something called democratic pluralism. We keep mentioning this guy named Michael Lind has been very influential for the both of us. He has this book called The New Class War, season two, episode one, if you want to hear more from our conversation with him and J.D. Vance. But in the book, he sort of talks about in many different ways, he doesn't actually think populism itself is an effective way for accomplishing goals in politics. Instead, what populism often is, is a good way of articulating viewpoints that are not held or respected or considered in sort of the mainstream political establishment. So there are many ways, and you've probably noticed this over the course of the show, that I disagree with populists on the left and the right. I do, however, think that what's very important in our society and what anyone who believes in democratic pluralism believes is that in our society, we need to make sure that different viewpoints are heard and respected and articulated properly so that we don't just have chaotic backlashes every four to eight years. So if you're someone who is ticked off at the fact that you don't think your immigration views are respected, or you're someone that's ticked off because you think your student debt is too high, or you think that the political system isn't responsive to you, populism is going to be a way that you express that frustration, but oftentimes that frustration doesn't actually lead to a constructive political result. So it's really important that we work to sort of keep those things together. Next question. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Sarger. Go on, please. Yeah. And what's really important about that point about democratic pluralism and a lot of my politics and how I kind of answered that question is that when I talk about ideological capture of our institutions and when I talk about concentrated capital and power, what I'm really talking about there is saying that there is one party rule, so to speak, in many ways, and that we're really just quibbling about which countries to invade or not, or we're really just quibbling over, you know, which corporation or which different special interest is going to get its tax cut, instead of actually talking about the distribution of capital among citizens and about a balance through which we could actually live. So, one of the most important ways that I think that we can achieve real democratic pluralism is not just by disrupting government, but by disrupting the powerful institutions in all form. Because one of the things that I've really learned through you know through this observation of American politics, through this podcast and so many different forms, is a concentrated power in any form in the United States, which takes on a monolithic single point view ideology, is just as much of a threat to your liberty and it is just as much of a threat to our democracy. All right. So the next question is from Michael. He says, with student debt at $1.7 trillion, is there any solution other than a bailout for borrowers who are buried in college debt? What do you say, Marshall? So quick note on this. We've been getting so many really interesting policy questions, and we really do need to say Sagar and I are not policy experts by any sense, and not in the annoying, you know, death of expertise, wonky PhD sense, but generally speaking, we talk about a lot of different things. So don't think that we are authoritative sources on any of these sort of things, but we are taking notes of the question you guys are asking for, and we are definitely going to do a higher education student debt episode because there's a lot that we actually learn by doing this podcast. But on to what I personally believe. It's unclear to me that there's any solution other than some form of bailout, and that sort of works on a couple of different levels. So part one, 
I think we should acknowledge that the government played a large role in the hyperinflation of student debt. That's everything from consistently increasing the amount of student loan capabilities that are available. That's also including the fact that you can't discharge your student loans in bankruptcy like you can just to different other sort of places. So we should recognize that people who are participating in this system, which in many ways is very unfair, it's unfair that there are plenty of jobs out there that shouldn't on from an empirical level require a college degree yet do anyways that's something the government's sort of complicit in so we should be sympathetic to people who are burying too much debt which limits their abilities to do things that we care about on this podcast like having families getting a home actually becoming productive good members of society but the one thing that i would should know is that we should be very cognizant of the types of people who do take on student debt so for example it turns out a lot of people that have student debt are people who went to graduate school. And graduate school is very, very expensive. So there are a lot of people that, for example, went to community college for a few years and didn't graduate, or went to a state school and didn't graduate, who have a lot of student debt. So they're in the worst case scenario where they are not receiving the benefits of college, but also have a lot of the debt. So I would definitely prioritize down market people over a person who went for their second or third graduate degree. What about you, Sagar? Yeah, I completely agree with you, Marshall. I don't see any other really way out. And then student debt and student debt and its accompanying factors which keep down younger Americans. And we should remember, you know, of course, not all working class younger Americans have student debt. Only about 40% of younger Americans even try to go to college. But student debt is one of the chief impediments to family formation in the United States. And what I would do is actually lump it in with all of the accompanying debt that so many younger working class Americans have relative to their peers, largely because of predatory financial institutions. As you point to, Marshall, government policy, which encouraged the irresponsible taking on of so much debt and putting people in types of situations that they had no idea that they were signing up for when they were 18. And amongst many of these colleges themselves, which have dramatically inflated prices because they know that they can get away with it and that eventually the bill comes due for the student and the bill never really comes due for them. To me, I would lump it in with a much bigger policy of going after the chief impediment to younger Americans' lives, which is debt, which is opportunity. The number one reason that Americans in 2018, which is the latest year that we have available data, said that they didn't get married is because of economic circumstances. And I firmly believe that that is a massive blight on the so-called richest country in the history of the world. And so I am fully in favor of some sort of bailout whenever it comes. I agree with you, Marshall. We need to look at like the most important groups and others, but on a philosophical level, there's absolutely no way that I'm against it. One of the most interesting proposals that I've actually heard on this is that college endowments are almost exactly equivalent to the amount of student debt in this country. We got $1.7 trillion in the hands of these universities like Harvard and MIT and all these other bastions of so-called liberal academia. Then you got all of these students who are sitting with almost exactly the same amount of debt. So one of my favorite proposals I've actually heard on this is a 99% one-time tax on all of these endowments, which are basically Wall Street hedge fund private equity companies masquerading under our nonprofit tax laws and then just giving it to the students that they built themselves. But Marshall, I know you have some disagreements on that one. Yeah, I pretty much disagree with everything you just said. I mean, the endowments issue is an important issue. So for example, there are schools 
like Harvard, schools like, you know, a lot of Ivy League schools and some actually bigger sort of state schools who have large endowments, who oftentimes aren't directing those resources towards students as much, and who most importantly are not actually increasing their sort of class sizes. So if you sort of think about this, part of the issue of a lot of these schools is that there has been a set fixed number of seats at these universities for a long time. And if they were to expand the number of students who could attend, that could affect everything from the price that people paid to the actual benefits they, that they sort of accorded. Like, does anyone not think there's a world where Harvard could double the number of students they admit while still maintaining the same overall quality? Because there's still thousands and thousands of people who try to get into these sort of schools that can't do it. But at the same time, I think the whole idea of a mass endowment tax is almost certainly a bridge too far. It's almost trying to address one issue um, with a sort of different issue. Um, and at the same time, too, like this is the part where I may sound a little more libertarian in a way that we usually don't like to sound, but it's that, that money is the school's property. I don't think you just reasonably say that because there's this thing that we don't like and because there are schools that are charging things that we don't like, we're going to take that money, give it to other people. Um, that's why I think any form of bailout would almost certainly have to come from the actual federal government, from taxpayer dollars. And most importantly, to make it seem like we're not just sort of mass liberals talking about forgiving people's debt, <laughs> there has to be some form of exchange. People sort of refer to this as a grand bargain. So if you did say, hey, we're going to spend a large amount of money forgiving education that people received, well, there would have to be a something offered in return. That could be everything from, for example, requiring that schools of massive endowments spend more money on students and resources instead of simply accruing wealth. And also that could include less generous loan policies from the federal government, because in many ways, it was those generous loan policies that basically made it so that a school could say, hey, we're going to raise tuition by huge amounts over the course of 20 or 30 years without actually increasing outcomes. But students are basically going to be able to pay it no matter what, because under the status quo, the government will front them the money up front. So there's a lot that we could do there. Yeah, that's really smart. Okay, what's next? Question from Mike503. And by the way, Mike, I hope that the 503 is a reference to Portland, Oregon, where, where I am from, because this question actually deals with vote by mail. So Mike's question seems like states that are big on mail-in voting are all very blue and would never go for Trump. So with the Electoral College, why should we worry about them? So Sagar, what I'll ask is, he's basically referencing to this controversy with vote by mail. Could you give people a little background on that before you answer the question? Yeah, so there's a big controversy around vote by mail. Obviously, Trump is very against vote by mail. A lot of other Republicans say that it's rife for voter fraud and for ballot harvesting and so much more. But I got to be honest, I, and I rarely find myself in agreement with Kevin McCarthy, but he's out there publicly saying, hey, look, like, Vote if we're against vote by mail in the middle of a pandemic, then senior Republicans are just not going to are not going to vote, period, because they're afraid of going and voting in person, rightfully, I might add. And ultimately, that being against mail in voting is a political disaster in the middle of the 2020 election. Now, I'm not I look, I'm not an expert whenever it comes to mail in voting. A lot of the concerns that I have seen around ballot harvesting, around fraud and around that just basically seem kind of unfounded to me. I mean, look, like, actually, as far as I can tell, mail-in voting is almost a little bit more secure because they reject a large number of ballots for suspicious reasons like signatures not matching and much more. I think in New York, they rejected, like, they rejected thousands of ballots for that 
exact reason. Ballot harvesting, as far as I can tell, does not happen on a mass scale. Now, I'm not saying that it necessarily could, but really what this comes down to for me is not even about the mechanism of mail-in or not. It's about expanding access to the ballot. Now, there is a big Democratic narrative out there that expanded access to the ballot means that Democrats will win. It's just not true. Look, the Knight Foundation study of 100 million Americans who do not vote, they found that expanded access to the ballot, if we could get more non-voters to show up and vote, their votes would be almost equally split between Democrats and Republicans, and that a Trumpist type Republican, what I mean by that is a culturally conservative and more economically center politician, would actually win more votes. So that is something that I always have to point to whenever I see, frankly, a lot of conspiracy theorizing around mail-in voting, which is why project the image that you're trying to get people not to vote when the study alone and basically all the data that we have shows that it might actually increase more voter participation, which is not even bad for us. So that's my response on this whole question, which I just think is very silly. And Marshall, I know you're from Oregon. You literally voted by mail several times, so you tell me. Yeah, Oregon's been vote by mail entirely since the 1990s. I've actually never ever voted in person in an election. Whenever I didn't mail it in, I dropped it off at my local library. So I am totally fine with vote by mail. I think obviously in a country of 330 million plus people, there are going to be edge cases where there's some sort of scam or something sort of goes wrong. But if you look at Chicago in the 1960s during JFK versus Nixon, there was all sorts of in-person uh, voting that was illegal. Same thing of Texas and LBJ in 1948. So I just think that if we get too into this debate about what forms of voting are effectively subject or potential have some sort of use of bad means, I think that no system is going to come out looking perfect. And I think that largely speaking, things actually work pretty well in states that are sort of doing it. And then also, it doesn't seem to me, and you spoke about this saga, that we don't have any actual choice here when it comes to the social distancing issues, when it comes to seniors who actually who actually sort of want to have vote. Obviously, something that's always very frustrating and something that we sort of seek to do is de-escalate the culture war battle. I know that we definitely have some listeners right now who are saying, but the Democrats say that, you know, they're fine with mass protests where people are sort of getting super close, but now they're claiming that they're not fine of voting in person. Yeah, like that's hypocrite that's hypocritical and silly and stupid, obviously. Social distancing, especially with old people, is important regardless of the context. And like, I don't think there's any context where it's okay to violate social distancing policies, whether it's a protest or voting. But that being said, I don't think we should be making public policy decisions for this country based upon the fact that in many ways, Democrats and Republicans can be hypocrites. That's just isn't going to lead us anywhere. And that's not going to actually help seniors who actually want to sort of have vote. And if we're sort of looking, if you're a Republican, at where Trump performed poorly in the past few months and where his collapse amongst voters is coming, it's from seniors who don't think he's taking the coronavirus seriously. So I don't think the message here is going to be charge into the polls, wait in person for four or five hours. And that's going to be something the Republicans should be associating them with. But the broader question that I want to know what you think about soccer because this is the thing that people should be worried about is with mail-in voting the concern for many people isn't the fact that there be fraud it's just simply going to be that there's going to be a delay in receiving all these sort of ballots and sort of counting them so there could be a world where for example there isn't we're not going to know who the winner is for a while. It's going to be sort of a reprise of the 2000 election with Florida there was a good tweet going around talking about how 
looking at the current configuration of the states, it's actually possible that President Trump could actually get more electoral votes night one, but over time as mail-in balloting came in, Biden would actually do better. And then win the election, so that seems like a disastrous situation from a trust and conspiracy perspective. What do you think about that whole dynamic? Yeah, I did a whole radar on it on Rising, and I actually really spared no, I spared nobody there because I frankly don't trust either of these actors. And I'll tell you why, which is that, Look, Trump is obviously out there talking about mail-in voting. He definitely could see a scenario in which he could say, like, yeah, we won on election night and there's fraud and all that. But at the same time, I mean, Hillary Clinton has already come out and said, she hasn't op- she's openly said it on video. She says, I've told Biden he should not concede the election under any circumstances and that they have teams of lawyers that are involved in making sure that they're going to challenge. And really what I think the nightmare scenario there is that, If things start to get close in Florida and in Arizona and other states with large elderly populations, which are going to see a surge in mail-in voting, you are going to see every legal maneuver in the book pulled by both the right and the left to disqualify each other's ballots. I'll give you an example. In New York State, they actually disqualified thousands of different types of ballots because of the type of postage that was used. And that postage problem was actually not even the fault of the voter. It was the fault of the issuing envelope agency for one of the departments of the New York state government tasked with issuing ballots. So effectively, thousands of ballots were actually disqualified. Now, those ballots happened to come from an area which might have benefited one candidate. And so people are like, hey, like this is crazy. This is where I think the distrust in the institutions is going to come into major play. Because like I said, Biden and his people have got some of the best lawyers on the planet. Can't exactly say the same thing for the Trump administration there, but I'm sure that they'll have as many lawyers as they need. And when you start trying to disqualify people's ballots from different counties on different grounds and different states, you're just going to have a whole mess around the election. So I don't even think this is like a Biden and Trump thing. I think that this is just a total disaster really waiting to happen. I just realized we didn't actually answer the question. (laughs) So to the actual answer of the question, here's why the balloting matters no matter what. There are a bunch of states that the elections could be incredibly close, right? Like, you know, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, the electoral map is so incredibly close. So there is just a world where in Florida, for example, during the 2000 election, where the number of ballots that are disqualified could actually determine the election. So that is why, regardless of the electoral college, you should care about whether or not the vote-by-mail procedures work, conspiracies aside. This is going to be a huge dynamic that Saga Roy just spoke to um, usefully. Next question. All right, next question here from Sandwich Haas. With the obvious flaws and possible budgetary issues in Social Security, what are your thoughts on possibly privatizing or partially privatizing Social Security? What do you think, Marshall? There can obviously be a debate about our long-term entitlement programs, national debt, Medicare, Social Security. There's all sorts of issues there. But for me, this comes down to timing. We're living in a point, and this is something we always talk about on this podcast, where there is so little trust between different institutions and between the different parties, between people who are actually voting for and against both parties, that the notion that this is the moment we're going to be able to come with some grand bargain on entitlement programs, it's just ridiculous and it's just fundamentally unserious. Um, so we have to address this issue, but I actually do not think this is the time to do it. I think that if things ever became an issue. So let's say say there was some sort of world where 
it was at all possible that seniors wouldn't get their social security checks, much like we did during the pandemic, much like we did during the 2008 financial crisis, I think the money would be come up for somewhere. This is an area where I'd be completely fine using, you know, the national debt to sort of deal with these things if we're not simply just paying for these things with payroll taxes. I just think the last thing we need during this sort of format or this sort of period in our country is a big fight over how much money we give to seniors when they arguably have been paying into the system for the long term. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I am completely against this idea. I, I accept the idea that, you know, fiscal cliff, all that stuff, although I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot to be said about some of the reasoning that's even behind that. Really what it is, look, how are these pension programs that are intertwined with Wall Street, hedge funds, and all these other things working out for the public sectors that worked with them? Ask the California pension system or the Kentucky pension system or so many other pension systems which got into league with Wall Street and Goldman Sachs and others which basically built them dry and have left them with huge lawsuits in court, how that ended up working out for them. So, Look, maybe in a world where we have a more responsible Wall Street and we have a lot of different regulations about how these things can behave, but in the current financial system, no way in hell should you let these people get their fingers on grandma's social security. This is also an interesting issue where the history matters here. On paper, there could be this notion that the Republican Party's base is against Social Security and Medicare because these programs are big government and they're fiscal spending. But actually, the Republican Party's base is incredibly in favor of these programs. And if we're sort of talking about this idea that President Trump, when he was a candidate in 2015, really sort of got onto something, something populist, it's just that, hey, it turns out that Republican Party voters, especially in the parts of the country that Republicans really need to win, sort of that former Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, actually really support the program of Social Security. So something the conservative movement is going to have to think about, and anyone should be thinking about, even if you're like you're a libertarian, is just the fact that the 1930s are over. There, there really is this idea that people have come to agree that these programs are fundamental to the way we run our country. So if you oppose those programs or you want to privatize things, you have to understand that you are not going to win those political arguments as they are constituted today. Okay, what's next? Say so we got two questions from Jordan. Uh, quick note, people have been sending in a bunch of questions in their replies. Usually I don't go with two questions, but Jordan actually kept these pretty short. So if you do want to ask multiple questions, we'll take it under consideration, but please keep them, especially the second one, relatively short. So Jordan's first question, can you provide a conservative populist rebuttal and alternative to Bernie Sanders's democratic socialist Medicare for all program and the Green New Deal? Super easy question, Sagar. Take it away. Okay. We get this question all the time, and it's a fundamental misunderstanding by left populists around what populism is. Populism is not a policy platform. It is a means of politics to an end at its most basic level, just like the realignment has nothing to do with populism. There can be a realignment around neoliberalism, like what's happening right now in Joe Biden's Democratic Party. And at the same time, as Marshall said, we are not policy people here. We do not claim to speak for the entire populist right. And one of the major critiques I have of the populist right is that they're a nascent political movement which barely agrees with things among themselves around big policy questions, largely because there's just not that many serious people who are into it, and it's much more about a political orientation than it is anything else. So when you say, what is the populist rebuttal to Bernie Sanders' Democratic Socialist Medicare for All, 
that presumes that you have to even have one. I mean, if there is a populist coalition to win an electoral college victory in America without one, does that mean that you're not a populist? Absolutely not. Same thing with the Green New Deal. And by the way, look, these proposals, they mean something ephemerally, but on a policy level, let's be honest here, like they don't actually mean anything. And if you want to really break it down when you're asking, like, is there a populist right solution to Medicare for all? What you're asking me is about healthcare, And I've answered, I think, this here on the podcast before, which is that at the end of the day, what Medicare for all means on a policy level is about a single payer healthcare system. To me, when you ask what's a populist rebuttal to Medicare for all, I would say, okay, I accept it as a populist position that all people should have access to health care. You are saying that the only way to do that or on an effective basis is a single-payer health care system. Now, I just simply don't accept that that's true. I think that through a variation of price control and anti-monopoly policy and much more, you could actually have a robust private health care market heavily regulated and tailored to the needs of the United States, which makes it so that cost is not the prohibitive factor in getting health care here in the American system. Now, you might say, oh, but that doesn't qualify for this, or it doesn't cover that, or what about these people? Okay, fine. Then you can create a government agency or whatever, or you can fund something through a public-private partnership in order to address those specific needs. Now, I can say the same thing on the Green New Deal, right? Like, the Green New Deal as a policy proposal from the left, basically, they don't even agree on it, but, you know, so-called, there's going to be all these apparently green union jobs, even though we need to dramatically cut our emissions, which nobody has yet been able to show me how that one is possible. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to pursue nuclear power. So maybe that's what the populist rebuttal is. And you can go and you can listen to our episode with Michael Schellenberger on this, which is that... Actually, if you want to achieve zero, a, a low-cost, zero-carbon energy future, maybe you should be a nuclear maximalist. And yet, I haven't really heard anybody on the populist left talk about that one. So, once again, I just want to, I want to hammer something home. There is no populist policy platform. Populism is a political means to certain government ends. That's it. Same thing with realignments. What do you think, Marshall? Yeah, I echo all of that, especially around the idea that there is no such thing as a populist program. Populism is a style of rhetoric, especially populism is saying, listen, the majority of people, and look, there's a lot of different definitions of populism, but I think, Sagar, you and I agree that for this show's purpose, populism really means saying, listen, there is actually a mass of people whose viewpoints are underrepresented or ignored in the halls of power. So someone could say, hey, for example, you could be a it's like you said, there's a weird way where you could say like, hey, like America wants higher taxes for things, but the elites in D.C. are doing lower taxes. So we're going to advocate and make an appeal to the va- vast majority of the populace. But for the broader point here and why this sort of populist platform thing is actually sort of confusing and oftentimes misleads more than actually illuminates you know who's actually been pretty good about articulating alternatives to the Green New Deal the sort of Mitt Romney center right. You know, there are plenty of people who Sagar and I disagree with on a normal level who would say, hey, let's do nuclear maximalism. John McCain, um, when he was a senator, was a huge proponent of expanding nuclear power. That episode that we have with Michael Schellenberger in June, Schellenberger is basically center left to center right in his politics. He's not in any way a populist. I don't think there's a single populist candidate who has really advanced an aggressive sort of stand when it comes to the Green New Deal climate change issues. So 
anything they sort of would sort of articulate and advocate for and oftentimes would line up with center-right policy. So people shouldn't get too confused about that. But the other thing that's important to sort of add here is that here's how populism in many ways could actually lead to different outcomes. So for example, something that's been very jarring for Republicans is there have been multiple red states that have actually voted heavily to expand Medicaid in their state, aka a relatively quote-unquote, big government, democratic program that gets more health care to people. That was a huge part of the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, when it passed, you know, during the Obama presidency. So if you're on the populist right, there's actually a world where what you would say is, I'm, I'm in favor of increasing access to Medicaid. Now, that's not something that's technically on the right from a public policy perspective. But what you would be doing in terms of populism as a political system is you'd be using populist rhetoric to say, hey, our voters want this program. I don't care what the DC think tank or PAC space says. I'm going to make sure my voters get access to healthcare. That would be an instance of right populism that if you sort of took it away from that context, wouldn't make sense from a pure political philosophy um, sort of set of arguments. So that's just really key here. So then onto the quick second question. Are conservative and progressive populists in agreement on anti-monopoly policies? Uh, I, I, another great question, Jordan. And well, the answer is it's complicated because it's like I just said, I don't think that there are a lot of Democrats or progressives who would want to use anti-panoply to go after the hospital system because they would want to just nationalize the hospital system writ large. Are they in agreement on concentrate? Are they in agreement that concentrated capital and concentrated firms in certain sectors of the economy have too much power? Yeah. I think that that generally is kind of where it ends. So even if you look at the tech debate and the reasons, the coalitions, and what is influencing people who want to break up big tech from a right and left perspective, they just couldn't they couldn't come from more different places. So what I would say is, yeah, they do agree on anti-monopoly policy, but they don't necessarily agree on which sectors of the economy need to have it enforced on or not. And I should also say, by the way, that there are some people out there who even align more with right populism, who actually don't really agree with anti-monopoly policy. And what they really advocate for are strong, robust industries here in the U.S., which are heavily regulated by the U.S. government. I got to make sure that those people have a voice here as well. So I'm glad you brought up the tech debate because the tech debate is a perfect example of how everyone gets this issue confused. You'll often hear from people that there's this bipartisan populist attack on these tech companies, especially when it comes to social media issues. But if you actually look at what the left and what the right are saying, they're actually making entirely different arguments. So yes, they're starting from the position that these companies have too much power to the concentrated power thing Zager brought up earlier in this question and earlier in the episode. But if you look at their critiques, they're fundamentally different. So for example, there are plenty of people on the left who say, look, Facebook is bad. Facebook has all this power. It dominates speech in this country, especially through its acquisitions of Instagram. And they use that to allow hate speech, to allow white nationalism and QAnon and all these sort of like not great things sort of exist on the platform. That's the left attack. Well, on the right, you actually see people arguing, actually, Facebook is bad because it controls speech in this country, but it uses that control of speech to censor conservatives, to censor viewpoints not enough. It should be freer. It should be more libertarian. So the second you got all these people in a room to have some sort of debate about what they're going to do with anti-monopoly policy, it would break down almost instantly. And then on a broader level, I think if you look at the conservative rhetoric around hospitals or Amazon, 
Amazon or there's other sort of tech companies, I don't think there's a strong body of work. So that's why conservatives tend to focus on the social media aspect, because at least from the current sort of framework, that makes sense in the sense of, oh, this company is not great because it censors our speech and our voters don't like it. So it's somewhat like the Hollywood entertainment industry issue. But the second that we move into the broader issues like healthcare, for example, the hospital monopolies at the local level Sagar is referencing to what happens with Amazon. You know, think of the debate about the Apple App Store and how Fortnite was taken out of the App Store. I don't think conservatives or Republicans broadly have anything to say about that issue. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. Next question is from Tyler from Alabama. Tyler is curious, what place is there politically for someone like me? I'm 29. I recently have gotten into politics, but haven't found a good fit. I consider myself socially liberal, but more pragmatic views on immigration and fiscal responsibility. I haven't found a candidate for my America since Tulsi, with everything in the news being either far left or far right. Where should someone look to find a movement to get behind? What do you think, Marshall? We have very, 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 very bad news, depending on your perspective for you, Tyler from Alabama. Also, there's one detail I forgot to add into this question. Tyler is also a atheist. So he, so Tyler's got, Tyler has a very specific sort of uh, set of beliefs about things. But in terms of for this stuff, I don't think there's a movement that's going to reflect any of those sort of idiosyncratic views that you hold. And I think there's a broader sort of lesson here. As Sagar and I have been doing the realignment more, as he's been doing rising more, I think what we're becoming, and I don't want to speak for you too much on the Sagar, but I think we're becoming more and more comfortable with the idea that a lot of our answers might not lie in a literal politician or in a literal movement. So there might not be a movement for fiscal pragmatists who are atheists, who are also um, immigration restrictionists, that probably doesn't exist. So you should get comfortable with that because the problem with our politics right now, from my perspective, is that everything is just sort of hyper-nationalized. Everything is just so much defined by these big national issues, especially on the cultural levels, that there isn't going to be a sort of movement that's built around these sort of alternate viewpoints, right? You know, it's, you, know you, you sort of spoke to your support of Tulsi. I see a lot of people who articulate your viewpoint who were Tulsi supporters. It's important to note that Tulsi did not perform particularly well in the Democratic primary. And it's also important to note, too, that if Tulsi went into the, into the Republican Party, as some people sort of say she should, she would actually perform, I think, far worse there because she's pro-choice. She holds DSA views on certain issues. So there is just this reality that some people in a hyper-polarized country are going to be left out of sort of the attachment to a party. And, you know, in many ways, I think that's actually awesome. I think it's good that you don't feel like you're a hack. I think for many people, it's clear that politics is not healthy for them. I'm not going to name names, but you could spend half a day on Twitter and you could clearly tell that there are people who, who frankly have a lack of attachments and institutions in their life. And they're simply reaching out to find attachment in these communities of hyper-politicized, decently bad faith people. And that's just not a good thing. So bad news if you're looking for a movement, but I think good news if you're looking to have a healthy sort of life. Yeah, I think that's right, Marshall. I mean, look, we need to get comfortable with the idea that these politicians aren't necessarily always going to represent us all that well. And that's actually pretty normal. That's kind of the norm. And the way that we make political decisions in this country is we have to decide which politician or which coalition or which party best aligns with the values that we hold most dear and which we're going to not necessarily look at. And look, I saw this a lot with a lot of my viewers and fans during Bernie Sanders' rise in the Democratic primary. I'd be like, hey, 
Bernie actually holds on to a lot of this woke stuff that you guys are that you guys claim to be against. And they'd be like, yeah, it really bothers me, but I really want Medicare for all. And I'd be like, hey, okay, that is a completely fine way <laughs> to look at American politics. You value the idea of healthcare for all so much that you're willing to look past some things which you disagree with. I think that's how most people in America have to vote. You should not presume that any one politician or party or anyone is going to perfectly represent you in a country of 330 million people. What you should do instead is try to find as many of your peers to pressure said institutions and such governments and assemble different coalitions to accomplish as much of what you possibly can in our political system. That is what democratic pluralism and government is really all about. So on to our last question from John. In a recent episode, you guys recommended reading more history. As a huge believer in the importance of history, I'm curious. What's a historical figure, event, or topic you think should be given more given more attention in understanding the current political discourse? Oh, man, this is, uh, John, you've crafted this question exactly for my heart. Because there's a quote, I, won't, I don't remember who said it, but I'm going to steal it anyway, which is that, the biggest problem with history is that it stopped being the history of power and started becoming the history of the oppressed. And I think that that's exactly where we are right now in America today. And I'm not saying that the history of the oppressed isn't important, but it's more important in my view to actually learn the history of how that oppression came to be in the first place. And to me, the greatest story of a of the greatest story in American politics is the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and how exactly Lyndon Baines Johnson, a former leader of the Southern Caucus in the United States Senate and friend of avowed segregationists, was able to pick up the mantle of John F. Kennedy, who was unable to pass any of this, by the way, and actually make it become the law of the land in the United States of America. It's the perfect fusion of, this, of my theory here because we learn a lot about the different figures involved in the civil rights movement. But how much do we actually learn about the legislative maneuvers, the different political coalitions, the trade-offs, the power and the institutions that were used in order to actually ensure that we could have universal enfranchisement in this country? That's something where I think that most people don't know. Of course, it's the central story of, of Lyndon Johnson's presidency and of the Robert A. Caro biographies of him, but I really just can't recommend enough studying how exactly, and I really mean this, the minute by minute, the congressional hearings, the different maneuvers, the Congress people involved and the staffers, how the New Deal came to be in the United States, how the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was actually passed. If you want to understand how we can achieve titanic political tasks, then this is what you really need to spend more of your time reading. What do you think, Marshall? So yeah, we usually talk a lot about the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s in terms of both the height of our ability to do things and then sort of the 70s, you have the initial collapse of people's faith and in institutions and the current sort of start of the hyperpolarization. But I want to take us a little further back. So there's this book called Victorious Centuries by David Kennedine, and it's about the United Kingdom in the 19th century and basically how there was this period where in the 1830s, there were all these 
these huge challenges. You had sort of the start of the Industrial Revolution. You had all these debates over free trade. You had these sort of different classes of people from a sort of like the British aristocracy to the middle class bourgeoisie to the actual poor people who were working in factories who had all these sort of different problems. And what the book really talks about, and by the way, David Brooks did a really good write-up about this called How Nations Recover, if you're looking for a 600-word version of a very long book. What he basically talks about in the book is that the British Whig Party and the political system was able to work to find a huge set of compromises across all these different lines from trade to dealing with industrialization, to dealing with the class issues, to dealing with sort of polarization, so that when the rest of Europe sort of was literally lit on fire during the great revolutions of 1848, the UK was actually able to weather it because they were able to use the 1830s to promote reforms. So I think all of us should be thinking much more deeply about the way that 19th century Britain, especially on the domestic front, right? I'm not trying to have a conversation about the British Empire and the various problems there, but just really domestic Britain that in a bunch of ways was doing a lot of these same problems we're doing, was able to work through these with reform, was able to actually use institutions and parties to actually come to these sort of different accord, different accords. That's something that's so, so important. That goes back to the other democratic pluralist idea, because I think this period in British history is sort of the height of the idea of pluralism was that no side won any of these issues. It really was the idea of different classes, different institutions finding compromises and not winning. If there's one thing that Sagar and I can do with this podcast long term, and we've really received great feedback from, is this idea that there are different sides who listen to this podcast. There are different people who listen to this podcast, and no one side is ever going to win. There's not going to be sort of an era where people who believe in woke anti-racism are going to get everything they want in American politics. There is no world where basically anti what conservative people are going to get everything they want. And too many sources of media and too many commentators, mostly because of the whole click-based economy and advertising, basically tell you otherwise. You really have to concede that there are going to be things you're going to have to give up. To Sagar's great point about there being plenty of Bernie supporters who are like, yeah, I don't like really agree with the woke stuff, but at the end of the day, if I want Medicare for all, I need to have a frank conversation with that. Okay, with that, that is the end of our second Realignment Cues episode. As a reminder, if you haven't done already, we would really appreciate it if you scroll to the bottom of that Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars. It really helps other people find the show, and we will stop bugging you after we reach 1,000. We're currently somewhere in the mid-600s. So last but not least, as always, a huge thank you to the Lincoln Network for hosting and sponsoring this podcast. It's been super awesome. We've done more than 10 episodes since we restarted the podcast in August. Our views are up. We're having a lot of fun. So please don't only send us questions to realignmentpod.gmail.com, but actually send us more suggestions. It was really cool to learn that you guys wanted mugs. We're actually looking into exploring, doing live Q&A and other forms of interactive events with you guys. So it'd be super awesome to hear what you think we should should do who are some sort of guests who you guys would like to talk to we think there's just a lot of stuff that we can do with this especially as we go into the election so we will see you on thursday